This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. Whether this is your first or most recent time hearing the story on the 1980 Olympic hockey Miracle on Ice story, we are telling it again today because on this day in history, Coach Herb Brooks was born in 1937. And by the way, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And now on to the story of Herb Brooks. It was more than a hockey game. It was us against them. It was freedom versus communism. Nobody gave us a hope in Halloween. It was a sliver of the Cold War played out on a sheet of ice. Here you have a bunch of fresh-faced college kids taking on the big, bad Soviet bear in the United States, in the Olympics. The confluence of events was so extraordinary, it can never happen again. Nobody paid attention to what Americans said in the world anymore. Our hostages had been taken, and we couldn't get them back. The Red Army went into Afghanistan. We couldn't get them out. It might have been the all-time low point for American public self-esteem. Who knew that these kids would become the vehicle for making people feel excited and proud again to wave a flag? It was a miracle. David slew Goliath. It was the greatest sports moment of the 20th century. No one could know how important one game could possibly be to a nation that seemed to be losing its way. Certainly not in 1979, when a weary America heard from its embattled leader who told us we were a nation in crisis. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. President Carter was seen as a, an expression of the American self-doubt and lack of self-confidence of the mid-70s. Here's Vice President under Jimmy Carter, Walter Mondale. Our public support was eroding rapidly. You could feel it when you're out with people, when you're giving speeches, when you're shaking hands. America, I think, had begun to wonder whether we'd lost our edge. In the 20 years since winning the gold medal at the 1960 Olympics, American teams had become increasingly unable to compete with the dominant Europeans, especially the Soviet Union, whose players were amateurs in name only. The goal was to avoid being embarrassed at home so in July of 1979, the best amateur players in the country were invited to try out for the 1980 Olympic team. They invited us all to Colorado Springs and they divided us up into four teams. Basically, Eastern guys, Michigan guys, Minnesota guys, and an at-large team. Over the course of 10 days in Colorado Springs, those four teams played a round robin. It was a nerve-wracking situation. It was a, a pressure-packed situation. And as that tournament went on, it was being evaluated by Herb Brooks. Minnesota native Herb Brooks never went to charm school. He was abrasive and intense. He was also the best college hockey coach in the country at the University of Minnesota. People were a little afraid of him. 
He had always been considered kind of an outsider, had his own way of thinking, his own way of doing things. And he already had a history with the Olympic team. As a University of Minnesota player, Brooks thought he had made the team in 1960. He was even in the team picture. But at the last minute, coach Jack Riley added a new player to the roster, and someone had to go. The someone was Herb Brooks, cut just one day before the team left for the games. A crushed Herb Brooks immediately called his father to vent. So I called and said, Dad, this whole thing is bull****. Eastern coach halls, fixed all politics, and I went through the whole thing. And finally, my father said, you're done. I said, yeah. I said, well, I keep your bleeping. He said, keep your mouth shut. I heard enough of that. And you get back and thank the coach, get your ass in the locker room, wish your teammates well, and get your ass home. How's my father? God rest his soul. I said, yes, sir. So I came home. I'm watching this thing unfold. The Americans got hot. And they won our country's first gold medal. I'm watching this thing on TV. My father looked over at me. He says, looks like the coach cut the right guy, didn't he? And just bang That left unfinished business in Herb Brooks's life. He had something to prove. He was on a mission. A mission to shake American hockey out of its slumber. First, Brooks had to trim the roster from 80 to 26. Tough part will be getting it down to 20 before the opening ceremonies. Behind the Iron Curtain, the Soviets were the best hockey team in the world, perhaps the strongest ever assembled, and everybody knew it. Vladislav Tridiak grew up outside Moscow and became immersed in the Soviet's communist sports machine at a young age. He developed into perhaps the greatest goaltender to ever play and starred on the Soviet national team for over 15 years. Vladislav Tretiak. You score on Tretiak, keep the puck. It doesn't happen often. By 1980, Boris Mikhailov was already a 10-year veteran of the Soviet national team and the most recognizable face in international hockey. Here's Boris Mikhailov. Sport was tied with politics, and any victory had big political undertones, especially during the Olympic Games, when the general secretary and everybody else was worried about how we would represent our country. Our task was only to place first. They were government-sponsored magicians on ice. The goal was to win for the motherland and to show the world that Karl Marx had it right. They played hockey the way we played basketball, with the same kind of control of the puck, the same kind of intricate offensive patterns, and of course the presence and goal of Tretiak. How could you beat him? Back in the U.S., Herb Brooks had been contemplating that same question for years. After all, how many times does one have to get hit with the same hammer and sickle before they learn? We, uh, we also need to change the way we play the game. North American hockey had forever been a very linear, dump-and-chase style of hockey, unlike the Soviets and Europeans, who played an artistic, very free-flowing system built on finesse, speed, conditioning, and overlapping movements. Most of all, team chemistry. Brooks was calling for a revolution in American hockey. And what a story you're hearing, and you're going to hear the rest of it after these commercial messages. Coach Herb Brooks and the 1980 Olympic Miracle on Ice story continues here on Our American Stories.
And we're back here at Our American Stories in our This Day in History series, as always, is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And on This Day in History, Coach Herb Brooks was born in 1937. Let's get back to the story. Brooks was calling for a revolution in American hockey. I tried to develop a team that would throw their game right back at them. But first, Brooks would have to get his players to start thinking as a team, which wouldn't be easy. How's it looking? A lot of guys from Minnesota and Boston. Let's go! The rivalry between the University of Minnesota and Boston University was one of the fiercest in all of college hockey. Well, how about it, boys? Look like hockey to you? You want to settle old scores, you're on the wrong team. As much as I was a Boston hockey player and I had pride in my roots as a Boston hockey player, I had an enemy and my enemy was the University of Minnesota. And the Boston guys, you know, we thought we were pretty savvy and, you know, there were guys that didn't lock their doors or left their wallets out in plain sight. We thought, you know, these guys are a bunch of hicks from the cow pastures. I wanted to blur the, the boundaries of our country, build a we and an us and ourselves as opposed to an I, me, myself. Our spirit was going to be a big asset and you can't have that type of thing if you have pockets of individuals and that there's not those team building exercises throughout the year. To fill the most important role, Brooks picked 22-year-old Boston University goaltender Jim Craig, the man who would backstop history. You know, people I speak to say Craig's game has been off since his mom died. <laughs> they were seeing when his game's on. Craig was recovering from the recent death of his mother, Margaret, to cancer. Starting in August of 79, Brooks began employing his main team-building exercise, beginning a rugged six-month pre-Olympic training program with a strategy. You know, maybe if they hate him, they won't have time to hate each other. To bond them as a team, his players needed one common enemy. I'll be your coach. Him. I won't be your friend if you need one of those. I remember when he told us, I'll be your coach, but I won't be your friend. And I'm like, boy, this is going to be a long year. He quoted in the paper that I had a million dollar set of legs and a 10 cent fart for a brain. He'd give you that glare and that look, and it's like, oh my god, what did I do wrong now? I can honestly say that uh, there was no sense of regionalism on that team. There was a sense of Herbieism. Brooks didn't just put up a wall between himself and the team. He threw in a moat and alligators too. I need you to stick tight with these kids. One of the first things Herb told his assistant coach, Craig Patrick, was, I'm going to be tough on them, and you are going to have to be the one who keeps everyone together. Okay. It was an elaborate and flawlessly constructed game of good cop, bad cop. He would later call it his loneliest year in hockey. Here's Coach Brooks. A lot of these guys being college All-Americans, they were never pushed like that, never pulled. And I wasn't trying to put greatness into anybody. I was trying to pull it out, pull it out way up here. And I don't like coaches that try to put it in because they think they've got all the answers. But you got to believe in them, uh, have high standards uh, of them, and pull it out. And my favorite coach, John Wooden right here, I think he would concur with that. As September arrived, it was time to start playing against future Olympic competition. So Brooks took the team to Europe for a series of exhibition games. Before a game against Norway, a team they would have to face at the Olympics, he issued a challenge. I said, guys, we're going to have to play the Norwegians in the qualifications. So we do it tonight. We send a message right now. 
but playing flat and uninspired hockey, the U.S. could only muster a 3-3 tie against a team they should have trounced. Brooks was furious. You guys don't want to work during the game? No problem. We'll work now. Goal line. He's standing there with his suit on. He makes us all get behind the net and on the goal line. He starts blowing his whistle. And we did what are called herbies, which are blue line back, red line back, far blue line back, all the way down and back. Think you can win on talent alone? Gentlemen, you don't have enough talent to win on talent alone. Again. Two or three of those would be tiring. Blue line back, red line back, blue line back, down and back. Ten or twelve of them would be excessive. You better think about something else, each and every one of you. When you pull on that jersey, you represent yourself and your teammates. And a name on the front is a hell of a lot more important than the one on the back. Get that through your head. Again. And we did them for about 45 minutes to an hour. The rink attendant turned the lights off on us and we still skated in the dark. In the dark, he's screaming at us. Booming voice around this empty arena. How about it, Silky? You gonna be the first one to quit on me? It was pretty intense. The message went out right then. They're not gonna play the game like that and disgrace their abilities or our collective efforts. That moment probably had more to do with us gelling as a team, feeling like we were a group, a family. We looked at each other and said, you know, basically he can do anything he wants to us. He's not going to break us. The following night, the teams played again. The United States won 9-0. to zero. But there were still six cuts to be made, and Brooks was making it clear that no one was safe. Not even the team captain. You better start putting the puck in the net, Rizzo, or you're not going anywhere. Here's team captain, Mike Arruzzioni. Two weeks before the Olympic Games, he calls me and he's going to cut me from the team. You're not good enough. You shouldn't be here. I never should have taken you. I'm going to send you back. Don't think I won't do it. And I'm thinking, he might just do this. <laughs> you know, I'm like, wow. The word got down that Arruzzioni's job was in jeopardy. So everyone said, if he'll cut the captain, where do I stand? Which is exactly what Brooks wanted. Timmy! What's he doing here? Hey, you guys know he's... Turning the screws even tighter, he brought in new players for tryouts just weeks before the Olympics, provoking the same fear in his players that Brooks himself experienced in 1960 when he was cut from the Olympic team at the last minute. But this was a new generation of player, and they'd had enough. Assistant coach Craig Patrick approached Brooks on the team bus. Herb, some of the boys want to have a word. Here's defenseman. Jack O'Callaghan. And I said, you know, Herb, I don't think you should do it. I think it's wrong. We're going to Lake Placid in a week. I mean, stop it. Get rid of these guys and let us get serious about this. And I was looking for that moment where their cohesiveness and strength of association was such a strong bond. And then I would just cut the cord. And that was the moment. Brooks sent the late additions back home. He trimmed the roster to 20 and kept his captain. Herb never did anything on a whim. He planned, and I think he felt like that maybe this was the last test to see how close these players really are. Twelve Olympic team members were from Minnesota, four were from Boston, and two apiece were from Wisconsin and Michigan. Yeah. But just days before the Olympics, the Americans had one more yeah, test to take. Well, I still don't know why you scheduled this, Herb, but get your guys to New York. 
They've got a game to play. On February 9th, 1980, at Madison Square Garden in New York City, they skated onto the ice to play an exhibition game just three days before the start of the Olympics. But to their opponents on this night, it wasn't just an exhibition. The Soviets had just recently embarrassed the NHL All-Stars, the best of the best, defeating them six to nothing. But before the game, Brooks told his team to go out and have fun. Have fun? Brooks himself later described the Garden Game as a ploy. He said, what could possibly be gained by playing the Soviets tough and waking them up? We got crushed and we thought, these guys are in another world. They just kicked us around that rink. The goals they scored were, you could have filmed them, they were so beautiful. They were like robots. When they scored a goal, they never smiled. I don't think I ever saw them smile. We were about ready to stand up and applaud them. We didn't see anything like that before. You know, guys hitting now, but you see that goal? Did you see his move? It's like, we were spectators. I looked up at the scoreboard. It said 10 to 3. It might as well have said 20 to nothing. 10-3 made it sound closer than it was. It was no contest. There couldn't have been a greater low point given the preparation and the, and the work that we had put in. It was very demoralizing. As each team left New York City and headed five and a half hours north to Lake Placid, their future seemed clear. Here's ABC's 1980 Olympic hockey announcer, Al Michaels. Anybody who left Madison Square Garden that day thought to themselves, the Soviets will win every game in the Olympics, take home the gold medal, and never be challenged. And the U.S., all you knew is that when it came time to face the Big Bear, they had no chance. As discouraging as the loss to the Soviets was, it was not something on the minds of Americans. Throughout 1979, as the hockey team was preparing to compete in the Olympics, Americans at large were also competing with the harsh realities of everyday life. Here again is Michael Ruzioni. Look at the economy. Look how much money we're paying for gas. Inflation was absolutely ridiculous. People just didn't feel good about the United States. A lot of people wondered where we were headed. And when we come back, more of the remarkable life story of Herb Brooks, the man you know, but didn't know. More about his life. He was born on this day in history in 1937. This is Our American Stories. And we continue with the story of Herb Brooks, who was born on this day in history in 1937. And we continue now with this remarkable American story. And then, in November, just when things seemed like they couldn't get any worse... This is NBC Nightly News. They did. With Jessica Savage. Good evening. The American Embassy in Tehran is in the hands of Muslim students tonight. Spurred on by an anti-American speech by the Ayatollah Khomeini, they stormed the embassy and took dozens of American hostages. On November 4th, which was a really rainy day, a hundred or so Iranian students climbed over the walls of the U.S. Embassy, yelling, Magbar Amrika, death to America. In a few seconds, uh, the door was knocked down and 
Iranians with automatic weapons uh, stood right in front of me and uh, held them against my head. This morning, for the first time, Barry Rosen and 51 other Americans would be held hostage in Iran for the next 444 days. They would come into our cells and hold us up against the wall and use an automatic weapon and count from 10 to 1 just to scare us. Iran's Ayatollah taunted and mocked President Jimmy Carter. Carter tries to frighten us on the economic front. He does not have the military courage to attack us. It was a constant nightly embarrassment to all Americans to see our influence in the world seemingly ebbing away. Every night on the evening news they'd burn an American flag for us. We were not feeling very good about ourselves. In December, it would get even worse. Day 54 in Iran, and while there has been no significant change in the hostage situation, there has been a major development in the country next door to Iran, Afghanistan. During the last three days, more than 5,000 Soviet combat troops have been airlifted into Kabul. Up to another 50,000 Soviet troops have massed along Afghanistan's northern border. As one administration official said privately, this is the grossest piece of international behavior in some time. The period after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was uh, one of the tensest periods of the entire Cold War. It was always a potentially dangerous situation that if it ever had gotten out of control would have meant the end of the world as we knew it. It's very important for the world to realize how serious a threat the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan is. The Cold War was getting colder by the day. And with the Soviets on American soil, they were encouraged to see the American press blaming America for the world's woes. Newspapers were full of articles like blaming Americans for everything. So an attitude for the entire Olympic team, let's show them who we are. Let's show them who are the greatest. Let's show them who are the strongest. And let's show them on their soil. The Winter Olympics began on February 12, 1980. No one was expecting a showdown between the Americans and the Soviets. Not even the team captain. Here again is Mike Ruzioni. I know you guys are really facing a Herculean task here. Uh, it's like sending you into the lion's cage. Do you feel like that? Uh, yes, we do. You know, you got to be realistic about things. We're, we're a young team. We're the youngest Olympic hockey team ever. If you had to pick us, I think it would probably be picked fifth. The Soviets blew out their first two opponents with a combined score of 33 to 4. The seventh seeded Americans opened against the heavily favored Sweden and trailed 2 to 1 late in the final third period. Here again is Al Michaels. I remember the U.S. had several opportunities to tie the game and you just got the feeling and of course as the clock ticks down and now you're under a minute, well it's, it's not to be. Jim Craig for an extra skater to try to tie it up. With only 41 seconds to go, Brooks pulled goalie Jim Craig, which allowed him to put an extra skater on the ice. But in return, it also left the American net empty. It was a desperate move for a desperate team. Fighting for control of the puck with 29 seconds to play. Baker on it, Baker! He was just trying to get on net. And I couldn't believe it when it went in, you know. You can always wonder if Billy doesn't score, what happens to the hockey team? Well, Billy did score. And the Americans in the key game in the first round tie it up. 
That was the biggest goal of the Olympics because if the Americans lose that game, they're virtually out of contention before the Olympic Games start. Two days later, the Americans faced Czechoslovakia, underdogs again, in a game they had to win. Many people said that the Czechs were considered the second best team in the world and the only team that had a chance to beat the Soviets. Well, we pretty much dominated the Czechs. Then late in the third period, as the Americans were skating to a 7-3 Valentine's Day massacre victory against the second best team in the world, Mark Johnson, the team's star player, was knocked to the ice from a cheap shot by a Czech player. As Johnson lay in the middle of the ice, Americans watching on television were introduced to Herb Brooks, up close and personal. take this stick and I'm going to stuff it down your throat. People were ready to hear that kind of thing. He would not have sat back and let the Ayatollah stomp all over the U.S. while holding a bunch of hostages. I think that was one of the moments where a lot of people in this country said, hey, they've got a pretty good little story taking place here. We have these fresh-faced kids, got to keep an eye on these guys, and look at this coach. I mean, he's right there, backing his players. So everybody's starting to look ahead to this prospective matchup against the Soviets, but before that, you have three other games. Norway figured to be the easiest of the games, and it was. There is Pavlich who gets it back to Selk, who scores! Davy Selk from Mark Pavlich. Then you had Romania. Restaur, he scores! And they won that game. Germany presented a little bit of a problem, though, on, on Wednesday night, the last game prior to going into the medal round. Germany leads 2-0. So wait a second, what's going on here? You, you don't want this bump in the road. You don't want it now. And the U.S. is able to come from behind and beat Germany. So they did all of the things they had to do. But then, of course, you had the specter of the, the Soviets just looming there. Seemingly no one, certainly not a bunch of college kids, could stop them from winning the gold medal. Herb Brooks, after all, wasn't coaching a dream team. He was coaching a team full of dreamers. There's a big difference. Today, the concept of amateurs in the Olympics is as obsolete as eight-track cassettes. The expression dream team has become part of the five-ring lexicon. Herb Brooks would later see the dream team as ironic because when you have dream teams, you seldom get to dream. But this was a game of striking contrasts. It was experience versus youth, men versus boys, champions versus upstarts, communism versus capitalism, all on a sheet of ice in the Adirondack Mountains. After studying the Soviets for years, Herb Brooks could sense their overconfidence and told his team to take advantage of it. I kept whetting their appetite. Someone will beat those guys. Someone's going to beat those guys. I don't like how they're playing. They think they're better than they are. Brooks also thought his team was giving too much respect to the Soviets. So he began chipping away at their mystique by poking fun at their leader. 
one of the top players in the world, who just happened to look a lot like a famous comedian. Boris Mikhailov was as close to, I mean, the hockey chief of the world as there was. And Herbie starts teasing the guy all week. Look at that guy's nose. God, look at that guy's face. Looks like Stan Laurel. And he's insulting the guy. Ha ha ha. Can't play against Stan Laurel. Piece of cake, guys. And when we come back, the last part of one of the best stories we've done here on this show. I just didn't know almost any of this. What a life story. What a story we sort of kind of knew but didn't know. We love doing that here on this show. Again, when we come back, the rest of Coach Herb Brooks' story. He was born on this day in history in 1937. continue here on Our American Stories with the life of Herb Brooks, the coach of the 1980 Olympic Hockey Miracle on Ice team. Let's continue with the story. Can't play against Stan Laurel. Piece of cake, guys. To relax them, to keep them focused, and also plan that and say, hey, someone's going to beat those son of a guns. Then, on Friday, February 22nd, the Cold War was put on ice. The 13th Winter Olympic Games. The excitement, the tension building, the Olympic Center filling to capacity. In the locker room before the game, Herb Brooks gave the speech of his life. You were born to be hockey players. He told us we were born to be a player. You were meant, we were meant to be, be here. here. This moment Tonight. was ours. This is your time. And he told that story about going up and spitting in the eye of the tiger. If this is our time, this it's not their time. This is your time. Screw them, Stan Laurel, all those Russians. Now go out there and take it. It's our turn. And I remember a telegram we got from a lady in Texas. And all the telegram said was, beat those commie You realized that the USA on the front of your sweater meant that you were playing One, for your two, country. Three. USA! Here we go as the game is underway. The Soviet Union in red and the United States in I remember for the first five or six minutes feeling as though I couldn't feel my feet on the ice. The Soviets struck first. And it was deflected in. And the Soviet Union leads one to nothing at the 9-12 mark of the first period. The Russians scored first and he winced and thought, here it comes. But the U.S. team took that blow. Craig made some key saves. And then Buzzy Schneider came down the left wing. Up ahead to Schneider. The tying goal failed to unnerve the Soviets. They quickly scored again, and it looked like the first period would end with them leading 2-1. to one. But with just seconds remaining, the methodical team that almost never made mistakes made the worst kind, a mental error, and it changed the course of the game. David Christian has the puck. It's about five seconds left to go in the period. I start to skate to the bench thinking the period's over. I remember seeing Mark Johnson go scooting up. Like, he just didn't stop playing. He was still playing. The Russians had stopped. That made it one to nothing. Long shot, the easy save by Trediak, but Johnson is there and scores with one second to play in the 
The Soviets aimed to fix that mistake in the second period, quickly scoring the go-ahead goal. They dominated the action, outshooting the Americans 11-2 in the second period. Only Jim Craig's brilliance and goal prevented the game from becoming a blowout. But the Americans had never come from behind the best team in the world. And the Soviets always dominated the third and final period. It looked as if this night would be no different. That is, until lightning struck. Just 81 seconds later, the team's captain, whose name in Italian means eruption, triggered one. That's when the building went crazy. I mean, that's when sound had feel. I mean, that was like an earthquake. Now we've got Bedlam. Oh, I love Brooks' reaction. Here it is again. The atmosphere in that arena was incredible. The, the feeling, the sense that they could do this, that they could actually pull it off. That goal coming at the 10-minute mark, exactly halfway through the period. When I sat on, I looked up and I went, 10 minutes. Long time against these guys. They could score in 10 minutes what would take us 60 minutes to score. And I knew that. Too much time, too much time. You can't hold them off this long. It was just a constant clock watch, shift by shift, shift by shift. Eight and a half minutes to play. The Americans now leading 4 3. It went on forever. I mean, time just stood still. Five and a half minutes to play. 3.53 remaining in the game. 2.25, 2.24, 2 remaining. It kept building and building, and the clock kept winding down, and it just got louder and louder. 55 seconds, but they come up as the puck. 28 seconds, the crowd going insane. Parlamont. The plan of hand is there, the puck is still loose. 11 seconds, you've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to Schultz. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! The entire U.S. bench cleared, everyone except Coach Brooks. After throwing both arms overhead and doing a tiny pirouette and punching the air with an emphatic left fist, he walked straight off the bench, turned right into the runway, got patted on the back by weepy state troopers, and went back into locker room five. Herb Brooks locked himself inside an orange toilet stall and cried. Once the team made it into the locker room, they broke into a spontaneous chorus of God Bless America, filling in the words they couldn't remember with hums and whistles. In Lake Placid and all over the United States, the victory triggered an outpouring of national emotion never before provoked by a sporting event. On the Iron Range in Minnesota, people ran outside and hollered and shot off guns. In the Mediterranean Sea, the USS Nimitz one of the world's largest supercarriers flashed the score to a Soviet intelligence ship that was nearby. The Soviets would not lose again for five years, and the Americans would not beat them for another 11 years. But the future domination came with no rewind mechanism, no clause that could undo what happened on Friday night, February 22, 1980. It was the 13th anniversary of the film debut of Walt Disney's Cinderella, Maybe it figured. The nation continued celebrating, but for the hockey team, it wasn't over yet. People 
always forget that the U.S. had to win another game on Sunday. It was still possible. If the Americans did not beat the Finns, that they would not only not win the gold, they wouldn't win any medal at all. And Herb understood this. And we were excited, we were anxious, we couldn't wait to get out and play. And Herb Brooks walked into the locker room, and he looked at us and he said, if you lose this game, you'll take it to your f grave. Then he stopped, he walked a couple of steps, turned, looked at us again, and said, you f grave. Once again, the Americans would have to come from behind. And we went out there in the third period, and I think we just steamrolled them from the time they opened that door and let us out. They didn't have a chance. Three unanswered goals in the third period gave the U.S. a 4-2 win and the gold medal. The Olympics broke Herb Brooks' heart in 1960 and made him the most celebrated American hockey coach in history two decades later. But on August 11th, 2003, in a single car accident, a little bit of the Lake Placid miracle died, with Herbert Paul Brooks on the hot, hard asphalt of Interstate 35 in Forest Lake, Minnesota. As his casket descended down the steps of Assumption Catholic Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, it passed under a curved canopy of hockey sticks raised up by his 1980 gold medal team. Many of those holding sticks were fighting tears and losing the fight. If Herb Brooks' passing reminds us that human beings have a shelf life, it also reminds us that miracles do not. And this miracle didn't happen on accident. I see Neil Broughton skating on a flooded rink in Roseau, Minnesota, that his father got up at 2 a.m. to make in 25 degree below zero weather. I see John Harrington's late father Charles skipping overtime at work to watch his kids' games, because his overtime would always be there, but the games would not. And then see him years later listening to John skate against the Russians from the cab of his locomotive. I envision Margaret Craig running her goaltender son and all her other kids all over southeastern Massachusetts, a devotion that was absolutely unstinting until her cigarette habit caught up to her and cancer arrived. Behind every player, there are stories of love and sacrifice and struggle. Life is hard, and Olympic gold medals provide no exemption. You push on, do your best, and if you are really brave, you dream big, doubts and fears be damned. This is the stuff that miracles are made of, and the proof was there to see on February 22nd, 1980. And great job as always to Greg, and I don't know about you, but I'll never forget that day. And I'm sure you knew where you were, and there are very few events in American life where we actually do remember where we were. By the way, I was at Paul Biatini's house. I had been co-captain of my high school basketball team with him, and this had happened just after we graduated. And I was gathered in the house early, and people started talking about this hockey game, and pretty soon there were 35 to 40 of us gathered at the Biatini household. And when we won that game, the place erupted, the country erupted, and it brought a country together. By the way, my buddy Paul died on 9-11. He was in the Twin Towers on one of the top floors 
doing an insurance presentation. He worked for a big insurance company. And that's another, that's another one of those days where everybody knows where they were and what they were doing. Coach Herbrook's story, it's a beauty. And always these stories, these This Day in History stories, because Herb Brooks was born in 1937 on This Day in History, are always brought to us by our great friends at Hillsdale College. I teach there two weeks a year, folks. And my goodness, the students are terrific. The faculty's great. It's a beautiful place to send your kid to study all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Herb Brooks's story here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, and your stories, too. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of the best material we put up on the air, your stories. Again, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And this next story is brought to us by Alex Cortez, who recently went to a fascinating event called Open Call where Walmart opens their doors to over 500 entrepreneurs to come to their headquarters, what they call the home office in Bentonville, Arkansas, and pitch their American-made products to get into their over 11,000 stores. It's a great democratization of the buying process for folks who may not know anyone at Walmart, and it's a part of Walmart's commitment to buy an additional $250 billion worth of American-made products over a 10-year period. And Alex now brings us the story of an entrepreneur he met there. Marissa Sergi is a redhead. I think the color of our hair gives us a platform to embrace our true selves. So being able to have that stigma in the public eye that we are these sassy firecrackers that are forced to be reckoned with gives us the ability to really meet our full potential and be fun and quirky and not be ashamed of it because we already have the reputation may as well meet up to it right and as you can probably guess by now marissa is she started a wine company appropriately named redhead at the age of 19 which you'd probably think is illegal to drink wine let alone to sell it but not in her state of ohio if both of your parents consent you are legally allowed to have a drink I've been drinking wine since day one, to be honest. My grandpa, Sergi, would give my sister and I thimbles full of wine. And my mom hated it. She would complain and just scream, oh my goodness, you can't do this. She's only like four or five weeks old. And my grandpa, Dominic Sergi, said, if you don't like it, you could pay for babysitting. And my mom stopped complaining. But hey, winemaking is in my blood figuratively and literally. I grew up in a very Italian-centered family and my grandparents immigrated here from Italy over 40 years ago and brought over the tradition of winemaking. So 
growing up, I always had lots of family and friends coming in and out of my grandparents' house, drinking wine and eating food just like they were one of us. And it was definitely something that inspired me to carry on with the family tradition. My grandpa passed away. I was only two years old, so I don't have any memory of him, but I'm able to embrace his memory through making wine. My father, Frank Sergi, he founded the winery where I work at called Lula Bella Winery. It was just a label to start. I wanted to design a fun label after doing market research, just looking what labels appealed to me as a young person, not you know, of age, but I knew labels were very important, so that's why I created Redhead Wine to have a very appealing label, yet having a high quality wine to match the packaging. And I was able to get a winemaking degree from Cornell University called Viticulture and Enology. Which some people might think is a joke of a program. I mean, you're already doing enough trinket in college as it is. Do you really need a major in it? You know what? <laughs> yes. I love when people tell me that because the number one most failed class at Cornell University is the wines class within the hotel school. It's because people come in there and be like, oh, I'm going to drink wine all day, get an A, and peace out. Well, um, when you fail and you can't get your diploma, it is a big deal. It is a lot of wine chemistry, biochemistry, microbiology, vineyard management, plant science, gen chem, advanced chemistry, organic chemistry, wine chemistry, one, two, and three. You can't just walk through the winemaking major at Cornell University drunk for the next four years, you know what I mean? You gotta pay attention, you need to know your stuff or at least get help if you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> I was a classic college student not paying attention in my class and I was texting and checking my email and I received an email that if you are a student entrepreneur and had a product or an idea to come to a meeting to receive free wings over Ithaca. Best wings in Ithaca. I love hot wings. They're very expensive, so I was a broke college student. So I was like, I'm there. I don't have a business, but I had redhead wine. I happen to have a bottle with me on campus. So I was like, I'm hungry. I'm going to check it out, get some wings and leave. Hopefully no one will notice me. But then I forgot. I have red hair. I stand out. I also had a bottle of wine, so everyone's like, oh, wine, how cool. And then I piled my wings very high on my plate. And then one of the professors running that meeting was like, if you're a student entrepreneur, you must give an elevator pitch at this meeting. It's like, crap, I can't leave because everyone knows I'm here. So I didn't even know what a pitch was. I Googled wine industry facts, slapped something together, didn't completely fall on my face in front of 100 people that were there. and. Two days later, I received an email from the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences that I was nominated as the Student Business of the Year for my college. I was like, okay, um, I'm not a business owner. I don't know how to even pitch a business professionally at a competition, but here we are. I did not win the competition, but I learned so, so much. I learned how to pitch a business professionally, all the business terminology that was really important to communicate when it came to costing and your market strategy, product market fit, uh, target market, all kinds of stuff. I just was a winemaker with an idea. So after graduating college, 
I moved to Modesto, California, worked for a winery out there. Got about a year of experience, and I was like, okay, I'm 22 years old, I'm single, I have kids, I'm just gonna see if I can make this dream a reality. I packed up my bags from sunny California, moved 3,000 miles back to my childhood bedroom in Ohio, and became a bootstrapped, unglorified entrepreneur <laughs> to launch Redhead. I knew I didn't want to be 80 years old on my rocking chair drinking some gin and tonic one day and be like, ah, I wonder if I did it. So here we are. It's happening. It's getting real. And when we come back, we continue with this delightful voice, and it's Marissa Sergis, and she is the founder of Redhead Wine, based in Youngstown, Ohio. Her story continues here on Our American Story. back with Our American Stories and with entrepreneur Marissa Sergi's story. The year was 2017, and she'd heard about an opportunity to pitch her redhead wine to Walmart and their open call event. I was just checking email. The Young Sound Business Incubator sent me the application, and I was like, wow, I have no chance. But I was like, the answer is always no if you don't ask. Crossed my fingers, sent in the application, and I found out a few weeks later I was flying to Bentonville, Arkansas. So I was excited but nervous because I knew there was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. When you pitch Walmart, it's important to understand how to work the best with Walmart and analyzing what's the benefit for them and how you'll bring them value. You can't just pitch your product and talk about your product and who you are and your business and how it's going to work. You need to think about who you're talking to. You need to provide as much value as possible and the product sales will come later. So I had a marketing professor from YSU help me analyze Walmart stores to see what percent of the market I could capture if they gave me a test market. And I believe that really showcased that we did our research. We understand we can't just drop a product on their shelf. Who's going to buy it? What current Walmart customer is going to purchase the wine type of thing? And uh, that really helped us a lot. I took a deep breath and just walked in there with confidence. Sometimes you got to fake it till you make it. But the buyers were so kind and really interested. When Walmart invites you to an open call, they want to work with you. Even if you walk away with a no or a maybe, there's still a chance. They want to make it work because they're interested in your product. They, they wouldn't be inviting you here to waste your time. But I really wasn't sure if it was a yes, so I asked them, hey, is this a yes? And they said yes. And I was very, very grateful for that. And when I walked out of the buyer meeting, I felt like I had an out-of-body experience. I couldn't believe I pulled it off. I couldn't believe they said yes to Redhead Wine and allowed me to have an opportunity at my dream by creating a wine brand that could potentially be shared with the whole country one day. So the first person I called was my grandparents. 
first people I called were my grandparents and they were very excited and it was nice to share that excitement with them and I put the boots on the ground and started hitting the pavement with sales. I'm a winemaker, I make the wine, but part of my test market, I had to pitch every single manager or department lead to get them to okay the product and then I would be able to sell it there. As many as I wanted in the state of Ohio, but I knew I could only handle between 30 to 60, so we capped it at that. I didn't want to bite off too much that I could chew because you have to deliver on time and in full. You gotta keep your commitments. The minute you're not honest in any business setting is the moment that you lose all of your potential and credibility. So that's something that I really tried to emphasize when I was trying to pitch and grow the company. What was most important was the, the sell-through rate. Are you meeting home offices, minimum sell-throughs? Just the number of units that you're selling per week, per month, per quarter. Are you having a great reputation? Are customers giving good feedback and looking for your product? And 60 stores later, a year and a half in the future, we received modular space. You have a permanent shelf position reserved for your product and your product only. So that is the most prime possession you could have as a, as a supplier, that you can't be kicked off the shelf by other competition. The home office has that little reserve sign for you with that tag, their price and UPC on it. And it's really cool to see on the shelf now. It just happened a couple months ago. A small town, 25-year-old winemaker with zero budget survived a Walmart test market with just true grit, just going, showing up, asking questions. How could he serve this store better? What could we improve on? How are sales? You have to have those conversations. Just because you're in Walmart doesn't mean you're set. There's a lot of work and responsibility that goes along with having this opportunity. It's pretty incredible that Marissa raised no money to start her business, and she's now in Walmart. Zero. Um, to be honest, I don't even care. I'm going to keep it very real with you guys. In two years, I've only spent $5,000 in marketing. It's just being honest, customer relationships, and putting my best foot forward. I think that's really helped because I am the winemaker, third generation winemaker, it's what I love and I think my customers resonate with that because there's a lot of brands out there and some of the stories are not true, they're just made up just to target a market. Redhead was made because I was hungry for hot wings and I had a bottle of wine with me. That's the real deal and I think that's why it's succeeding because I never overthought it, I just was in the moment. We employ about 40 people total at the company and we have hired at least six new additional employees due to Walmart open call. So we're very grateful to be able to do that, especially in Youngstown, Ohio. Um, I know a lot of our job losses have been in the public eye. Like GM Lordstown closed, we lost 1,700 jobs. Over 40 years ago, the steel mills closed. We lost 40,000 jobs. 
So being able to be from Youngstown, Ohio, while creating a California quality wine by buying the California grapes, while keeping the jobs in Ohio is super special to the area. And although we're only hiring a handful of people compared to GM or the still mills, it's exciting to know that we're at least affecting one additional family, maybe two, three, four, and we want to continue to do so. Just really grateful for the opportunity to have a partnership with Walmart. They've impacted not only my business, but many in my community and of course the entire United States. They've committed to invest over $250 billion back in the U.S. economy over this 10-year span that they plan to have open call. And due to research, that's going to create over 1 million jobs for our country. And that's something that everyone should be grateful for every day. So really happy to be here. At Walmart Open Call 2019, 25-year-old Marissa was invited to speak before the 500 entrepreneurs hoping to get into Walmart stores at this event, as she did. Ever since then, I've been paying it forward because I'm just so grateful and want to help others. And I think that's why Home Office invited me to speak here and be kind of a supplier on the inside, helping everyone feel comfortable and confident to pitch just realizing everyone's human. Just be honest, be real, be yourself. And I think that's the moment that you could really succeed and uh, do what you're sought out to do to make your dreams happen. Marissa only wished that her grandma could have been there to see how her sacrifice has paid off in Marissa's life. She is absolutely amazing. She only came here with a suitcase and a dream to give the future generations of the Sergi family a better life. So um, I work so hard because I don't want to waste her sacrifice. I wish she could be here today just to see what it's like to be at a retailer like Walmart and to see what I've been able to take from all of her sacrifices to um, be able to be one of the speakers this year at Walmart Open Call. It's just something that I never imagined would happen, but I'm here and I'm going to embrace every moment. Her name is Michalina Sergi, but her maiden name is Valentino. She absolutely loves wine. She's one of those traditional grandmas. You're making meatballs, homemade pasta. You've ate at least three platefuls of food, but you still have to have more and have dessert and an espresso. It's a real deal. So uh, she loves any type of wine and she definitely enjoys Redhead Red Blend. And you've been listening to Marissa Sergi, and she's the founder of Redhead Wine, based in Youngstown, Ohio. And my goodness, to bring 46 jobs or however many she's bringing to a town, what a thing to do, and what a thing for Walmart to do. And my goodness, what a story, committing to buying an additional $250 billion worth of American-made products in a 10-year period. That's a big deal, and certainly a big deal to people like Marissa Sergi. Marissa's story, and by the way, a story of intergenerational love. Listen to the way she talked about her parents and the sacrifices they make. This is a, this is a voice, it's a classic American voice in the end. Great, great gratitude and a hustle. She gets the order, she gets to Walmart, she says, oh, the work has just begun. I want to make sure I serve Walmart. It's just not about me. It's just not about my product. And that servant heart, boy, it was on display, Marissa's and proud parents and grandparents as well. Marissa Sergi's story and Walmart's story 
an entrepreneur story too, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love telling stories about everything here on this show. If you're interested in subscribing to our free and weekly newsletter in which we send you our five best stories, go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And now we bring you a story that's become classic American folklore. The year 1947, the place, Roswell, New Mexico. Here's Jesse. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. In July of 1947, a man by the name of Mac Brazel heard an explosion somewhere on his ranch, roughly 75 miles northwest of Roswell, New Mexico. The following morning, the 48-year-old ranch foreman left on horseback to investigate the sound that he had heard. Strewn about on a remote desert field was the wreckage of an aircraft unlike any he had ever seen. The rancher then called the local sheriff, who inspected the crash site. Not knowing what to make of it, the sheriff then took some of the wreckage back to the station before calling nearby Roswell Army Airfield. Intelligence Officer Major Jesse Marcel was one of the very first to respond to the scene. It was not anything from this earth that I'm quite sure of. Because I was, being an intelligence officer, I was familiar with just about every, all materials used in aircraft and in our air travel. This was nothing like that. It could not be. It, it could not have been. It was Major Marcel's commanding officer, Colonel William Blanchard, who ordered the recovery of the remaining wreckage that was left on the 8,000-acre ranch. Major Marcel described some of the material that he found. We found a piece of metal, uh, about a part a foot and a half to two feet wide and about, about two or three feet long. Felt like you had nothing in your hands. It wasn't any thicker than the foil out of a pack of cigarettes. But the, the thing about that got me is that you couldn't even bend it. You couldn't bend it. Even with a sledgehammer would bounce off of it. So, I knew that I had never seen anything like that before. And as of, as of now, I don't know what it was. Whatever it was, something had crashed at Foster Ranch and scattered debris over several acres. While military personnel gathered the unidentified wreckage, Major Jesse Marcel then loaded his trunk with items collected from the site and drove back to the military base. But first, he would make a little stop along the way. The Major's son, Jesse Marcel Jr., was 11 years old at the time and would remember that night for the rest of his life. My dad was dispatched by the base commander, who was Colonel Blanchard, to go out there and, and collect some residue to see if this was a military aircraft or if it was a V-2 rocket from the White Sands Proving Grounds or whatever was crashed on this rancher's land. And, uh, and he did go out there along with a CIC agent, uh, Sheridan Cavett, who was, that was the forerunner of the CIA, I believe. And uh, so they picked up the res, 
you know, representative portions of the debris that was out there. So he's going to uh, drive it into the base that night. Uh, our house happened to be on the way to the base, but he realized there was something very extraordinary about this wreckage. And he wanted my mother and myself to see this, because uh, he realized we'd probably never see anything like this again. So that's what he did. He <clears throat> did work a little bit out of his way to our house, and uh, he uh, positioned some of the wreckage on the kitchen floor of our house, woke my mother and myself up so we could see what he collected uh, out in the desert there. And uh, it was 1 o'clock in the morning, or thereabouts, very late in the morning. And, and he said, well, look at this. I want you to look at this now. I think this is parts of what they call, I think he said, flying saucer. And, uh, and that had a very special connotation, not knowing exactly what a flying saucer was, but I realized it was extraordinary, whatever. And uh, he said uh, the connotation was this came from outer space. Outer space or not, the items brought home that night were highly unusual. Metal fragments, um, beams with strange letters or writing on them. Yeah, I didn't keep any of it. Uh, people ask, well, why didn't you keep some of it? Well, I couldn't because it was part of the Air Force property. And uh, some people say, well, you brought, your father broke security by bringing this highly secret stuff to your house. But it wasn't classified at the time. Classified later, but it wasn't classified when he brought it to the house. Major Jesse Marcel then gathered up the wreckage and took it to Roswell Army Airfield. First Lieutenant Walter Hout was the public information officer at the 509th Bomb Group based in Roswell during 1947. What happened next was nothing short of bizarre. I was instructed by Colonel Blanchard to put out a press release, which in effect stated that we had in our possession a flying saucer. In essence, it said that we have in our possession a flying disc. It uh, was picked up on a ranch, and I can't remember if I said northwest of Roswell, brought into town by Mac Brazel, the ranch foreman, uh, and the material was flown to higher headquarters, 8th Air Force, General Ramey. Newspapers ran headlines about the crashed flying saucer that came down 75 miles northwest of Roswell. William Brazel, son of rancher Mac Brazel, who found the wreckage, remembers reading about it the following morning. I was not out at the ranch at the time, and I picked up an Albuquerque paper, and here's my dad's picture looking at me, and I thought, well, I wonder what he's done now. So I went on to read the article, and I told Shirley, I said, well, I guess I better go out to the ranch because they said that he, the Air Force had asked him to stay in Roswell. Anyway, they swore dead to secrecy. And I went out to the ranch and stayed until he got back. And I asked him what he got into. And, and I kept asking him questions. And he said, well, he said, I told the Air Force I wouldn't tell anybody. He said, you're probably better off without knowing. Regardless of being sworn to secrecy, the word was out, and radio stations all over the world began broadcasting reports of a crashed flying saucer. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile, found sometime last week, has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. 
Late this afternoon, a bulletin from New Mexico suggested that the widely publicized mystery of the flying saucers may soon be solved. Army Air Force officers reported that one of the strange discs had been found and inspected sometime last week. Our correspondents in Los Angeles and Chicago have been in contact with Army officials endeavoring to obtain all possible late information. Joe Wilson reports to us now from Chicago. The Army may be getting to the bottom of all this talk about the so-called flying saucers. As a matter of fact, the 509th Atomic Bomb Group headquarters at Roswell, New Mexico, reports that it has received one of the discs which landed on a ranch outside Roswell. The disc landed at a ranch at Corona, New Mexico, and the rancher turned it over to the Air Force. Rancher W.W. Brazil was the man who discovered the saucer. Colonel William Blanchard of the Roswell Air Base refuses to give details of what the flying disc looks like. In Fort Worth, Texas, where the object was first sent, Brigadier General Roger Ramey says that it is being shipped by air to the AAF Research Center at Wright Field, Ohio. A few moments ago, I talked to officials at Wright Field, and they declared that they expect the so-called flying chopper to be delivered there, but that it hasn't arrived as yet. When we return, first-hand accounts from former military and civilian alike of the UFO crash at Roswell. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return now to Jesse and the site of the UFO crash at Roswell, New Mexico. The 509th Atomic Bomb Group headquarters at Roswell, New Mexico, reports that it has received one of the discs which landed on a ranch outside Roswell. The disc landed at a ranch at Corona, New Mexico, and the rancher turned it over to the Air Force. Blanchard W.W. Brazil was the man who discovered the saucer. Colonel William Blanchard of the Rockwell Air Base refuses to give details of what the flying disc looks like. Shortly after these reports of a crashed flying saucer were broadcast, announcer Frank Joyce from radio station KGFL in Roswell received an interesting communication from someone claiming to be from Washington, D.C. I got a phone call. Well, I got a number of phone calls, but the one that really got my attention was purportedly from the Pentagon. There was young lady on the line saying, Colonel so-and-so, uh, this is the Pentagon calling. And this was within a few minutes of it going out on the wire. And the voice on the line says, uh, who is this? I tell him, he said, you put that story on, on the air about the flying saucers? And I mean, his voice was, you know, the type that really conveys menace and power. And I said, yes, I did. And he says, you're going to get in a lot of trouble uh, for this or made some some threatening 
comment and I said, look, I'm a civilian. You can't talk to me this way. You can't treat me this way. You can't tell me what to do in stories I put on the air. <clears throat> and he says, I'll show you what I can do. And bang, hung up the phone. The KGFL announcer wasn't the only one to receive a mysterious phone call from someone claiming to be from Washington. George Roberts, the owner of the radio station, was also contacted. I got a call from Washington from one of the offices of one of the senators saying, look, if you put out any stories on this, this thing, you're going to lose your license. It's not going to be over a period of time. It's going to be the same day that we tell you that you're off the air. If these intimidating phone calls were in fact from Washington, why would the military in Roswell admittedly put out a press release about flying saucers? First Lieutenant Jack Trowbridge had been assigned to the 509th Bomb Group in 1947. He was one of several military personnel who was then told not to talk about it. Jesse brought some of the stuff into the intelligence office. Their material had some peculiar properties. For instance, it looked like Hershey bar wrappings. And, but you squeeze it up in your hand as hard as you could, let go, and it returned originally to the original shape, instantly. And uh, so we looked at it and played with it a while, and then everybody went back to work. Later that day, boom, nobody knows anything, you just shut up, nothing happened, uh, etc. And when you're in the service, you do what they say to do. While military officials out of Roswell were distributing press releases about crashed alien spacecraft, the U.S. military would use Major Jesse Marcel to take the fall. They took pictures, of course. They had a whole flock of microphones there. They wanted me to, to they wanted some comments from me, but I wasn't at liberty to do that. So all I could do is keep my mouth shut. And General Ramey is the one who discussed or uh, told the, the, the newspapers, I mean the newsmen, what it was and to forget about it. It was nothing more than a weather observation balloon. Of course, which we, we both knew differently. Here again is Lieutenant Jack Trowbridge. What he had to show the press was really a weather balloon. This stuff was not a weather balloon. What he brought back. So he was forced to lie to the press, I would say. I don't think he was too happy about it, but you do what you're told again. You're in the service, you followed orders. And they were afraid of the American public panicking with this knowledge. I don't think that would have happened, but I, the word came down from up above when you do what it says. Could it have simply been a weather balloon? How could have all these experienced ranking military professionals have gotten it all so very wrong? Frankie Dwyer was a 13-year-old girl who was spending the day with her father, the firefighter, down at the station where he worked, when a state trooper came in with a piece of the wreckage. When I would wad it up, it was like I had nothing in my hand. I couldn't feel it touching my skin. It was real weird. 
drop it on the table and it was just like water. They all seem to mention this type of metal that looks like aluminum foil with otherworldly properties, and many of them report that they were intimidated by officials soon after handling the debris. Here again is Frankie Dwyer. He had this club or stick or whatever it was, and he would, was beating it on his hand, and he would hit it. Every time he would say something, he'd hit his hand. And he said, I want you to know you were never there. I didn't understand what he meant, because I said, yes, I was. And he said, no, you weren't. I said, yes, I was. And he said, can't you get this through your head? You never saw anything. You were not there. You don't know anything. And he said, you know, this is a big desert out here. We can just take you out in the middle of this desert, and no one will ever find your bodies. He said, you'll be nothing but bones, and nobody will ever know what happened to you. And I told him I would not talk about it. And what about reports of alien bodies recovered from the crash? No. As far as I know, an alien spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. If the United States Air Force did recover alien bodies, they didn't tell me about it either. And I want to know. The mortician for Roswell in 1947 was a man named Glenn Dennis. He too received a strange phone call in the middle of the night. Well, our mortuary had the contract for all military services out at the Roswell Army Airfield. And this uh, gentleman called and said he was a mortuary officer at the base. He needed some information. I said, what do you need? And he said, uh, how many uh, hermetically sealed infant caskets do you have? Three and a half, four foot in stock. And I said, we don't have any. I said, what's going on? He said, that's not important. I said, well, it is important also. But anyway, then I hung up. And then he uh, called back later and he said, uh, I need more information. And uh, you want to know what embalming chemicals that would alter the tissue, the stomach contents, and what is our preparation for uh, taking care of bodies and laying out in the elements for several days. And I said, you're the mortuary officer and you're asking me because I do it your way, you know. I've tried to find out who I was talking to. The mortician trying to get to the bottom of this strange request. His girlfriend at the time just happened to be a nurse who was working at Roswell Army Airfield the night they allegedly brought in the bodies. And it looks like what you see today, most of the little diagrams, you know, the four fragile fingers and the long arm, real short joint, the large eyes. She said the heads were almost completely demolished, but they could see they only had two orifices. They didn't have earlobes, they had two ear canals. The mouth was only about one inch. And that's the way she described it to me. And I was with her till about 11.30 that day, and then at 3.30 that afternoon, her supervisor called and said, your friend has been transferred out. And I had a serial number and everything else, but I never have found her this day. I've never made contact with her. So. People from all walks of life tell a very similar story. It was not anything from this earth that I'm quite sure of. Did officials at Roswell Army Air Base get it wrong when they told the media that they had a flying saucer in custody. I was instructed by Colonel Blanchard to put out a press release, which in effect stated that we had in our possession a flying 
saucer. Could all of these people simply have mistaken a weather balloon for a flying saucer? According to the official report from the Pentagon, that is exactly what happened. Air Force activities which occurred over a period of many years have been consolidated and are now represented to have occurred in two or three days in July 1947. Bodies observed in the New Mexico desert were probably test dummies that were carried aloft by U.S. Air Force high-altitude balloons for scientific research. The unusual military activities in the New Mexico desert were high-altitude research balloon launch and recovery operations. These are the stories of ordinary people who went to their graves swearing that what they had witnessed was not of this earth. Or maybe it was just a weather balloon. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.